As we start our, our study this evening, I'd like you to go on an imaginary journey uh, with me tonight, all the way up on this kind of imaginary elevator, going up and up and up and up, up into the clouds, out even into space. You know, space travel in this imaginary journey has advanced to such an extent that I'm no longer petrified of it. We're okay with it. We're going up on some kind of comfy escalator. Uh, and, but actually, we go up and up and up to the point that we can actually capture the whole Earth in our view against the, the enormous space of the cosmos. Countries and continents fade in together. Can you imagine how amazing that view must be, what that must feel like, the privilege of the few who've seen that? Maybe how seeing that view would change everything else as you come back down onto the planet. I found out the other day that, that this effect, for the few people who've done that, it has a special name, it's called the overview effect. The overview effect is the change in perspective experienced by many astronauts. Uh, apparently, for, for many, it is a life-changing experience. Many say that having done that journey, they no longer identify with a specific nationality, for example, uh, or specific culture. They see themselves uh, as citizens of Earth, of just one, pe one people living on one world. Uh, after the Apollo 8 uh, uh, mission, the astronaut William Anders' Earthrise photograph of the Earth from orbiting the moon was released. And actually the difference that photo made to people's even view of the environment was enormous. It led to the first Earth Day, for example, which ran shortly after. Last week in our study of Colossians, we, we had, I believe, a similar experience to that elevator journey. But instead of appreciating the creation, Paul's letter to the Colossians helps us to understand the creator for who he is. And if we understand Jesus as Paul presents him to us in Colossians, we should see him for who he is, the cosmic king of the universe. And it should therefore have a similar transformative effect on our experience and our attitudes. If we recognize Jesus for who he is, everything else shifts in comparison. It's that transformation in thinking and approach to everything else that Ken actually described for us a fortnight ago, to go further back still. We considered actually in Paul's prayer for us at the start of this letter, how we need a, a shift in our thinking. We had that imagery, didn't we, of green triangles, our human thinking shifting to be red circles leaving that worldly thinking behind, but instead trying to approach things as God would. And so then, as we move into tonight's passage, and in fact, as we look at the rest of this book of Colossians together over the coming week, week sorry, we, we see Paul describing how that will play out in practice. Tonight, we get a snapshot of how that affects his uh, approach to his ministry to others. You'll see that in the passage in chapter 2. If that word ministry is unfamiliar to you in this sense, basically that's a Christian word for how he seeks to lead and to serve others. Even uh, as he writes to people in Colossae, a place he's never actually visited before, the people he's just heard about 
from his friend Epaphras. We're going to look at three key aspects tonight of how Paul's approach to this is transformed by understanding and recognizing cosmic King Jesus for who he is. And we're going to see how each of those viewpoints contrasts for the rest of the world. So let's look at our first point together. We're going to see how the world says comfort is king, but in contrast, Paul says rejoice in suffering. In most situations in our world, being commissioned into service is really a sign of high privilege and seen often as like the culmination of someone's career. It's an honour. Yet for Paul, being called into serving Jesus had not been the source of privilege, but instead the source of suffering. At different times in the book of Acts, we see him involved in shipwrecks, being run out of town, and even on one occasion being stoned and left behind as seemed dead. His hands and his body wore the marks and the scars of his service of the gospel. And what does Paul make of all this? Well, at the start of tonight's passage, in verse 24, we can see Paul's attitude laid out plain. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. It seems wild, doesn't it? I don't know you about you, but I, I hate suffering. I, I've been unwell this week, and I'm an awful patient. Uh, I love comfort. I spend a lot of time in my life trying to work out how to make the situation as comfortable as it can be. You know, how can I minimize my suffering, and how can I maximize my comfort? And I think and I hope it's not just me who feels like that. When I look at the world, I think I see similar. You know, it might be in sales pitches that seek to persuade us to spend that little bit of extra money that we don't have just to make our life that touch more comfortable and convenient. But yet Paul sees it so differently to us, doesn't he? He rejoices in his suffering. And he does so for, for two good reasons, I believe. Firstly, because he knows that when he suffers, he follows in the footsteps of King Jesus, who established the amazing pattern of the gospel, that the Lord of that universe, the creator of all that we can see, would be willing to step down and suffer for others. And secondly, he also knows that his suffer sufferings are never pointless, but instead serve the purpose of spreading the gospel farther and wider. You might look at the first half of verse 24 and think, well, I, I, it's weird to me, but I get it. But the second half might seem a bit more confusing still to us. As he says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. How can it be that something could be lacking in Christ's afflictions? Surely Christ's suffering on the cross was sufficient it was enough, do we not think? The clue in here is actually the final phrase of that verse, where Paul is instead not describing Jesus' sufferings, but the sufferings of Jesus' body, that is, the church. The sufferings that they will undergo between uh, the time that Christ left them in Acts uh, and this whole phase of history that is to come, all the suffering that the church will endure in this phase of history. I was trying to think of how to explain that well. I thought it's a bit like one of those Bush Tucker trials 
on I'm a Celebrity, where the, the team of them have to eat all those ridiculous foods. I, I've got such a potent gag reflex that I would just be horrible at this. I'd be like one bite and gone. Um, you know, I'm in the corner ready to spew everywhere, where, where someone made a steel steps up and like, starts chowing it all down uh, and taking one for the team by eating as much as they possibly can. So the rest of the team, like me, don't have to. Uh, it's a, a silly analogy, I know, but I think in a slightly similar way, Paul is basically saying, I want to suffer as much as I can. I want to take as much of that suffering as I can that the church is going to endure. I want as much of that pie chart to belong to me so other people don't have to endure it. And while we might not be taking our bush tucker trial for Christ, there might be times when we'd rather eat something like that than reveal ourselves as servants of Jesus. I know even this week there's been times that I'm guilty of it, where my love of comfort or of, of popularity, of people thinking of me a certain way, extends to not wanting to reveal who my King and Saviour is. I wonder if at times we're at risk of becoming the spiritual equivalent of this guy from the, the Wally films. You know, happy to be swept along on a convenient and comfortable church experience where I come to church and it, it makes me feel good. Uh, programmed uh, activities, comfortable Christianity. Where when Paul says, uh, step out in risk, rejoice in suffering. It might be with that mate who's already battered away talk of Jesus or the worry of social exclusion for being willing to stand up for the, the gospel's values or, or the way the gospel calls us to behave in things like alcohol or sex and relationships or approach to tricky issues. It might be worry what, what people are going to think of us when we choose to make a stand for God's way, when the world's way seems so deeply embedded, it might be choosing to make our life a little bit more difficult because I know that's what's necessary to, to show the love my neighbor needs. In that moment, I need to remember how Paul points me to Jesus, the king of the universe, willing to come and suffer in my place. In light of his suffering, my suffering is tiny, and more than that is an honor and a privilege as I seek to serve my king. I need to see my suffering as Paul did, something to rejoice in rather than to avoid and to dread. Let's move on into a second point where we see the world says, find your own path, whereas Paul says, Christ and Christ alone. In verse 25, move on with me here, Paul describes himself as a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. We, we said Paul had been commissioned. Uh, and he's clear about what that commission involves. He is to be a minister, he says, a steward, a teacher of the God who desires to be known by all. In doing so, Paul's job is to make clear the mystery of the gospel as he seeks to explain to anyone and everybody who will listen about the new covenant and era that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection brings about. Paul almost presents it here as, 
as this great puzzle, this great mystery, which has been considered and puzzled upon for years, but is now being revolved, of how God's covenant with a chosen people, like we see in the book of Genesis, where it seems that God is just choosing one, is in fact, as it says in Genesis, going to bring outrageous blessing to all the families of the earth. This puzzle has been hidden from generations, although at times glimpses and hints have been shown. Time now for a, a geeky confession. I'd pretend to be embarrassed about this, but I'm not actually, in fact, a tiny bit embarrassed of this. One of my favorite things to do to sit down and relax when I have the opportunity is a beautiful Japanese puzzle. Uh, I've got a subscription to a magazine that comes on a kind of six-weekly basis, and that's one of my favorite bits of post when this comes through the door. I'm not just talking about the humble Sudoku here, although the Sudoku, it's got a time in its place. I'm talking Kakuro, Hanji, Sliverlink. I had a, a funny experience at school recently. We'd been asked if we'd offer an enrichment uh, activity some students that we'd pay 50 pence to engage in. Uh, to take, uh, donate some money to, to a charity. Lots of staff offered some really popular options, uh, like how to repair your own bike, uh, like Mario Kart tournaments. I thought, I'm going to offer Japanese puzzles because that's what the cool kids will enjoy. Uh, and some kids signed up. Actually, I genuinely thought no one would sign up, but some kids signed up. But much to, to my and their horror, they'd actually been expecting this. I'll wait for it. When what I had in mind was this. Imagine how gutted you would be. Uh, they were absolutely furious. At one point, one student just, just gave up on it completely and literally just started drawing their completely own pattern. Whilst I was saying, you know, the thing I love about these puzzles is there is one solution. And if you're patient and you've got your pencil and you know, try it out, you'll get to the one solution. Whereas they were just like, you know, do what you want. When I tried to, to gently correct them back onto the true Japanese puzzle path, I was rebuked, saying, it doesn't really matter, does it? It's just a puzzle. Whatever I do, it'll work out fine. And again, it's another silly illustration, but again, hopefully you can see there's a point I'm driving at here. There may be something of the approach to that puzzle it is representative of some of the things that go on in our society about how we try to come to answers to, to life's big questions. The approach of our current cultural moment to even the concept of truth. Actually, to say there is just one answer now is pretty alien. Instead, people want to be able to design and shape truth in the way that they see fit. And if it needs to change, it can. The idea of one truth seems alien. Yet Paul is clear that there is only one solution to this great mystery of God's salvation plan for the universe. We saw how it played out last week, didn't we, when we considered Christ as the cosmic king. Ben helpfully reminded us that that makes him the goal and purpose, the one answer to all of creation. He is the one solution to the mystery. Whilst in the Old Testament, God's presence with his people could be found in a particular location at the heart of the temple in Jerusalem, 
But now the mystery of Emmanuel, God with us, can be fully understood. And in this mystery, incredibly, Christ can be with us all the time. Anywhere and everywhere. Because and we, we see it at the end of verse 27. The glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. In many ways, those seven words offer us a great little snapshot of two great truths of the gospel. Number one, that Christ can be within each of us in the form of the Holy Spirit, that we can be so intertwined with him that wherever we go, he goes with us. And secondly, that journey with God doesn't even end at death. Instead, union with Christ now, it is just a glimpse, it's a sneak preview of that perfect union will experience with God after death. An incredible concept that Paul somehow manages to sum up in just three words there, doesn't he? The hope of glory. It's worth us spotting at the end of verse 25 how Paul describes this ministry of making God fully known. He's therefore telling us we don't need anything more than Christ. And if therefore other ministers or stewards of the gospel are trying to persuade us that we need something more, then they're doing it wrong. So if they offer us Jesus plus having to do certain good works, having to have performed certain rituals, or having to have had a certain religious experience, it's not the same gospel that Paul preaches. Or if they offer us maybe Jesus minus a partial presentation of the gospel, you know, Jesus with maybe some of those uncomfortable edges sanded off. Again, they're doing us wrong. They are not making Jesus fully known. If we accept that, we are misled. Paul offers us Christ and Christ alone. It's for that reason that Paul is so determined to work with dedication for the gospel. Notice just down with me in verse 29, all of the big words in this verse. He says, uh, oh sorry, I've given you the wrong verse number there, verse 28 even. Uh, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. It's clear that in, in different seasons and different stages of our life, we might need different things from our Bible teachers. I think this connects well with what we considered on Wednesday night when we thought about what it would mean to speak truth in love to one another in our study in Ephesians. What that might look like will look very different depending on the stage of life we're in and the situation we find ourselves in. In this part of the Bible, Paul is making clear his willingness to do whatever is necessary for those he cares for. Warning when necessary teaching when necessary, with a clear goal in mind to present each person mature in Christ. For me, it almost feels like an image of a teacher preparing their student for an upcoming exam, desperate that their student is completely prepared for the challenge they will face. Paul looks ahead to the day of judgment and wants to look with pride at his students at their maturity and growth and development. 
A good teacher with that in mind, therefore, does not ignore the errors and the faults that he sees, but instead lovingly but truthfully rebukes and corrects. He is therefore willing to say difficult things when necessary. And that applies to us also, doesn't it? Are we ready to warn when necessary? Are we ready to correct when necessary in love? When I look back over my my journey of faith, I I have no doubt I will have many times exasperated my my teachers in faith. Uh, And I will again, and again I'm sure too. I need this too. Uh, And in light of this, for, for those people and for all of us, Paul's final point for us tonight is such a helpful one to remember. As we see that the world sometimes says, is it worth it? Whereas Paul says, keep going. Let's read on from verse 29 together where Paul writes, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. This chunk of Paul's letter to his friends in Colossae is just soaking in the language of effort, isn't it? He toils and he struggles, dependent on an energy from God far beyond what he can offer. From the letter, you'd think that the guys here were his his closest friends, maybe, people he'd spent years with teaching and nurturing in the Bible. But yet, it's in light of this that actually Paul's real lack of face-to-face relationship with these guys is all the more remarkable. Remember, he he never actually met these people face-to-face. Instead, he'd heard about their faith through Epaphras, one of his own ministry trainees. Paul's desire for them, though, doesn't discriminate based on that. He cares for them all the same. Be it that they're from Colossae, or, or as we see, they're from Laodicea, or those he's even seen and taught face to face. I think that at times we, we live in a world that is uh, so cynical and calculating about whether or not something is worth it, and pretty strictly worth it only to us. I think one of the consequences of that are there some things that even in themselves undeniably good, that even get wrapped up in this, that they need to have an outcome that is convenient to it. So we might volunteer, but because it looks good on a CV or a a UCAS application, or or we serve because we want people to look at us and think that we're a good person. And I think that approach actually, it leaves us so quick to drop out of things once they've served that purpose to us. Once they've ticked that box for us, we, we drop them again because they're not doing anything for us anymore. Instead, Paul's effort and desires are consistent. Let's uh, head towards the close by looking at his two desires for the church. That they would have unity, being knit together in love. And that they would reach maturity in the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. If ever there are two words that don't come quickly or don't come easily They're these two words, aren't they? Unity and maturity. They don't come easy. 
And even more so when you notice what Paul is combining them here with love and knowledge. Therefore, if we try to achieve these things just by human efforts alone, they will be an impossible task. These things can only be possible through, through Christ's work, can't they? He is the glue who will bind us together. He is the one who will, who will reveal to us, even sorry, full understanding and knowledge. It's worth noting here, isn't it, that Paul doesn't want us to be a uniform church where everybody is the same, but instead wants us to be a united church joined in our Christ-like love and compassion for God and for one another. And it's clear too that these things are necessary for us to, to thrive as a church, to serve God and to serve others as we should. Just as in Paul's day, there are many plausible arguments like we see in verse 4, things that might seek to delude and to distract us. This unity and knowledge fueled by Christ's love is necessary for the church to stand firm against those things. And in the same way that Epaphras' report of the church in Colossae brings Paul joy, I'm sure even at a heavenly level, that in the future, as he hears of our firmness or quest for firmness and good order, it brings joy to both our brothers and sisters in the church as well as to our God who watches. As we close tonight, it might be worth us just spending a moment just to think that of, of those traps that we've considered, which of those we're most likely to fall into, be it the, the quest for comfort, the, the danger of relativism, or, or the trap of, of cynicism. Hopefully tonight, uh, something I've really taken away from this is the picture that Paul presents to us actually makes more sense for the here and now as well as of an eternal future. That, that actually a life of sacrificial service of others, of dedicating ourselves to the one true Lord and, and seeking to love one another more, it actually makes for a more joyful life in the short term. It's a more beautiful and attractive picture than the alternative, isn't it? As well as preparing us for that hope of glory that eternal future with him. Lots to, first to, to consider. Allow me to, to pray for us as we close. Father God, I thank you uh, for your word. I thank you that it speak to us, speaks to us uh, with truth and accuracy even thousands of years after it first was written. Lord, we, we recognize the ways that sometimes we can be pulled along but by the trends and the ways of the world. Help us instead to uh, live for that hope of glory that we have seen tonight and seek to serve you. That that view and that understanding of who Christ is would change every aspect of our life, including the way we seek to serve you and to serve others. Lord, help this not just to be a Sunday night consideration, but help us to, to think and to dwell and to apply these things in the week ahead. Amen.